The Rockefeller Foundation advances new frontiers of science, data, policy, and innovation to solve global challenges related to health, food, power, and economic mobility. Sign up for our newsletter and follow us on Twitter at RockefellerFDN. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Despite a strong economy, working families in America are struggling. The cost of housing, childcare, and health care continue to rise, and many families are finding it hard to make ends meet. On February 26th, the Washington Post brought together key government officials, academics, and advocates for an in-depth look at the plight of working families and low-income workers in the U.S. In this segment, key policymakers address the economic challenges facing American families today and examine what is working and what isn't. Let's listen. Good morning, I'm Libby Casey, on-air reporter and anchor here covering politics and accountability at the Washington Post. And I'm joined on stage this morning by Congressman Ro Khanna of California, welcome. Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms of Atlanta, Georgia, thank you for being here. And Mayor Greg Fisher of Louisville, Kentucky, thank you so much to all of you for coming and speaking with us this morning. And we'd like you to join the conversation if you want. You can go on Twitter and use the hashtag postlive in your comments or questions, and we will relay some of those questions on to our guests. So let's just dive right in. Congressman, you've been working on legislation called the Cost of Living Refund Act. What would it do? Well, first, Libby, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here with the two dynamic and innovative mayors. The Cost of Living Refund Act basically is a dramatic expansion of the earned income tax credit. Uh, the idea is that uh, we want to com- if we want to compensate the bottom 20, 30 percent of income earners, uh, you can do that uh, by having a, a massive increase in the earned income tax credit. Uh, giving basically seven to eight thousand dollars back to people, uh, making up to seventy-five thousand dollars. We know this is pro-work. It incentivizes actually employers to hire and people to uh, seek jobs, uh, and it's been one of the biggest tools uh, that can uh, fight poverty. It was actually an idea that Milton Friedman had, uh, and Nixon was for. So it's not a very radical uh, idea. How do you get Republicans in this modern day on board with this? What, what's your pitch? Well, there was a Republican idea. Uh, they've forgotten that, uh, the, uh, the genesis of it. And, you know, now you have, I mean, even Paul Ryan uh, was fairly uh, decent about it. I mean, he wasn't expanding it nearly as much as it needed to be expanded, but he was at least advocating for its expansion because he came sort of as a Jack Kemp Republican. The challenge is now that's not where the Republican Party is. I mean, I've unfortunately sat through budget committee hearings where they're obsessed about the quote-unquote fraud in the earned income tax credit. And then when you ask them and push them, what is the fraud? They say, oh, a grandmother is taking the earned income tax credit for a child uh, because she's uh, the actual person raising the child and it's not the parents. I mean, it's uh, arguing over trivial things. Uh, And uh, there's no real accountability on the people who are really scamming the tax system by parking money offshore. So uh, it's unfortunate that that bipartisan consensus has been uh, strained. But my hope is uh, that we will have more people who look at the history uh, and see that this is an idea that many conservative economists uh, propose. Mayor Bottoms, just this month, you launched a public awareness campaign to inform low-income taxpayers about the earned income tax credit. Why is that a focus for you in Atlanta? Well, it goes back to we don't know what we don't know. So many people just aren't informed. And so the launch of that campaign 
really is just about informing people, letting them know that there is money sitting on the table. And we looked at data from other cities, including Detroit, and we saw how much money taxpayers were able to get back when they simply um, asked for their earned income tax credit and what it meant for the local economy. And so I think it really is a great example of what we've been able to achieve in Atlanta through partnerships. We partner with United Way. We've gotten our transit service to donate uh, ad space on the sides of buses so that people can become familiar with this. And also, uh, even the IRS showed up with a representative. And what I said that day during the press conference is we don't often celebrate the IRS being inside a city hall. <laughs> but <laughs> on this occasion, it was a positive thing. And we've gotten radio stations to uh, chip in, but it goes back to what we are trying to achieve in Atlanta, and it's what we call One Atlanta. And an Atlanta that's equitable, that's affordable, and that's resilient. And um, we've done so many things in the city in keeping with that. We were finally able to get our minimum wage for all city employees to $15 an hour. So it's really incredible to see this discussion on the national stage. We did it in incremental amounts. We achieved it last year. We did a historic pay raise for our police officers and our firefighters so that they can now afford to live in the city of Atlanta. And also uh, pushing affordable housing because Atlanta is experiencing what Washington DC is experiencing and so many other cities across the country. Very data-driven metrics. 20,000 affordable housing units preserved or created by 2026. $1 billion pledged from our city. We're already 250 million in from public sources and 3,500 units in just two years. So we're getting there. Since, uh, we'll get to Louisville in a moment, but, but since Mayor Bottoms brought up minimum wage, I just wanted to ask you, Congressman, should there be a federal minimum wage? And is there a concern that what works in Atlanta may not work in a city in California? There should be a federal minimum wage, but this is an academic question. This question should simply be asked to Mitch McConnell. I mean, the House has passed a $15 minimum wage. The uh, House has support from it broadly with every part of the caucus. Uh, and the idea is that maybe there needs to be more differentiation higher than $15. I mean, $15 doesn't cut it in my district, but everyone from every part of the region agreed that $15 should be the floor. Let's bring you in on this, Mayor Fisher. What do you think about a federal $15 an hour, let's say, minimum wage? Well, there absolutely should be a minimum wage. The question is, should it be indexed to okay. cost of living, but start at $15, because as Rose said, that's not enough just to get by. So the question on so many of these issues is, do we, are we talking about the ability for our citizens to just survive, or do we want to create conditions where people can thrive? And so we are a long way from thriving. And when you take, take a look at the challenges that, that face the citizens of America around housing, healthcare, education, the systems that we're dealing with today are systems that might have worked a half a century ago, but they do not work today. And they stack the deck against the folks in our low income communities to where they barely have a chance to get out. So the intentionality of the programs that Mayor Bottoms and I have to do in, in cities, we're basically trying to recreate systems that the federal government ideally would be implementing in a world with fast pacing or fast changing technology, global economies, all these things are hitting us, but our systems are not designed for that. So we put together the small amounts of money that we have at the local level 
to recreate a system of lifelong learning, for instance, or a housing system, a healthcare system that surrounds our most vulnerable kids with mental health services and physical health services. So when they get to kindergarten, they're not three years behind their most advantaged kids. We should be investing up front as opposed to later when it's, we're putting in, in prison systems, we're putting in remedial systems, we just got this thing all upside down and we're paying more as a result of that. And here you're looking at that holistic, what investments can you make now that will help down the long run. I just want to pin you down on this question of minimum wage though and Republicans in your state have concerns, for example, in, in Kentucky about what that would mean to the, the cost of goods or what it might mean uh, to small businesses. This is the beauty of a federal minimum wage. It raises everybody, so there's not that competitive question. Other countries have done this, there's not damage from it, so to me, it's just a, uh, a raw political decision where you have to make this decision. Am I representing my people because I want what's best for them? Or am I concerned about what a couple of big businesses are telling me I need to do? Let's talk about gentrification because of course, development, uh, beautification, having tourists come to your city is very welcome from like the big picture uh, economic profile of the city, but it, it, it comes at a real cost uh, to city residents. So what are you doing, Mayor Fisher, to, to deal with gentrification sweeping through a city like Louisville? Yeah, our, our goal is to regenerate without displacing. And so the more rapidly your city is growing, the more difficult the task is. So like Atlanta is growing more rapidly than Louisville, we're growing. But so we have the opportunity to put in renter equity programs, uh, tax moratoria, down payment assistance for folks. Low income folks and African Americans in particular, when you think about the legacy of redlining and when you take a look at the difference between wealth of white families and black families, 10% black families have, why? Well, they weren't, be, weren't able for the most part to buy houses because they were redlined out. But today in our cities, we're pay, they're paying the rent, they're paying the rent, but they can't come up with a mortgage payment, down payment. So down payment, uh, homeowner assistance is a radically effective way, relatively inexpensive too, for black families to grow wealth. So we'll do that with our CDBG funds. They are declining, they should be increasing so we can help more people. We do that with some good foundation assistance that we have as well. And then we also do that through, if somebody is in a gentrifying area of the community and they need assistance to repair their home, we have funds to do that as well. So there are systems that we can put in place at the local level to uh, mitigate the impact of gentrification. But Mayor it Bottom is not right to, when you develop the soul of a neighborhood and then it starts gentrifying, for the people to have to move out is fundamentally wrong. Mayor Bottoms, let's get you to weigh in on this. What, what can mayors do? Well, what we are doing in Atlanta is really combining commerce and compassion. We're very fortunate that we are home to a number of Fortune 500 companies, and these CEOs have a seat at the table in helping us address some of these challenges. And so one example is where the new Mercedes-Benz Stadium is. It's in the heart of one of our uh, legacy communities that's facing gentrification. We put in place a displacement-free zone and with that funding has come an opportunity to pay rising property taxes for the next 20 years for legacy residents in that community. We recently negotiated a deal for the redevelopment of 30 city blocks in Atlanta. It will be the largest redevelopment in the Southeast in over three decades. As a part of that, we thought outside of the box. We know that property taxes will rise, residents will continue to be pushed out. So not only did we set aside 20% for affordable housing, 
but also created our first affordable housing trust fund in the city as a part of this redevelopment incentive package. And so it will give us the opportunity to expand these displacement-free zones so that people can have access to money to help pay their property taxes. We're helping our legacy residents resolve title issues. That's a big problem in our gentrifying neighborhoods. Um, but also just having a, a very real and frank conversation with our community members. I had some young men in City Hall as a part of My Brother's Keeper Alliance, and I asked them what did they feel about gentrification. And one of the young men said to me, very frankly and honestly, he said, I'm very happy to see that my neighborhood is changing, that it looks better. It saddens me that my cousins can't afford to live in my neighborhood anymore, but it's also given me an opportunity to see that all white people aren't bad. That was his lens because he had never lived in a diverse neighborhood. So I think we have to take these moments of opportunity and we see that we're bringing people together who otherwise wouldn't live in the same neighborhoods. But our most important opportunity is for us to make sure all of our communities know that when the communities look better, that it's for everyone and not just a segment of the population. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so Congressman Connor, you're, you're, you're nodding your head about that. What should the federal role be there? Well, the federal role should be to support uh, the work that uh, the mayors are doing. And there is a bill that uh, uh, Cedric Richmond actually is leading in the House of Representatives that would give billions of dollars of investment to build more affordable housing. And if you ask mayors, and I'm sure they chime in, one of the problems is they need more funding for schools and more funding for infrastructure if you're gonna ask to build more affordable housing, particularly near transit. And this bill would do that. And it would also uh, provide uh, specific assistance for down payment for communities that have faced redlining. Uh, it would provide uh, certain assistance to pay rent before someone gets an eviction uh, on their record. So the uh, effort is there in the House. Again, the question comes to whether the Senate would pass it and the president would sign it. Let's turn our attention to health care. Uh, Congressman, this is a huge concern for voters, of course, and you're the national co-chair of Senator Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign. So the Democratic Party is divided on this question of Medicare for all, uh, how viable it is, how would you pay for it, how would you get uh, a divided Congress on board with it. Republicans, on the other hand, want to dismantle the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. So, so how do you see a path forward? First of all, I would say the Democrats are 95% united. I mean, the media focuses on the 5% where we have differences. But every Democrat that I know believes that health care is a human right. Every Democrat that I know believes we need to get to universal coverage. Every Democrat believes we need to protect the ACA and is appalled, appalled by the Trump administration taking people's insurance away from them. Uh, every Democrat believes that it's crazy that you have people paying the types of deductibles and premiums that they are. I mean, very briefly, I was back home in Newark, uh, a city in my district, and someone on the school board came up to me and she said her son had to have emergency surgery to get his appendix out. Well, he got a bill, they got a bill for $3,500, 10-year-old son, and a couple days later, the 10-year-old son says, Mom, I'm so sorry that I've cost you this much money. I mean, what country are we living in? And that this is, I'm, I live in one of the most affluent districts and she's an elected official. So 
The question is, how do we get there? Now, my belief is that uh, Medicare for all, single payer, economically, is the best way to make sure that we're lowering the insurance costs, lowering the drug costs, saving money, and covering everyone. And we can debate about that issue. But uh, I think every Democrat agrees that the system isn't working and that we need real reform. There is agreement on a lot of uh, items that you mentioned among the Democrats, but there's not agreement on Medicare for all. I mean, we're seeing it play out in the debates, in the presidential debates. Um, so how do you get there? Well, you talk first about the history of this party. I mean, Harry Truman was for Medicare for all. And guess what they said about him? It was for socialized medicine. And then, uh, you know, this was part of the Democratic platform until 1980. It was Ted Kennedy ran on it. Jimmy Carter, by the way, ran in 1976 for, in Georgia on single-payer national health care. I was looking at the New York Times. I think we should take President Carter's advice. And uh, they, they asked him, how are you going to pay for it? He said, I'll figure it out when I'm president. Uh, so maybe that could be uh, instruction. But the point is, this was in our platform until uh, 1980. Uh, and the reason it was in, on our platform is that this is the uh, best way of providing healthcare that so many other people do. And I think when you look at that, I think the disagreement maybe is it the time, is it not the time? I don't think there's a disagreement on the academic argument that providing healthcare would be the best uh, through a single payer system, which, by the way, would create more private sector jobs. And this is an important point. Yes, you would lose some of the insurance and administrative jobs, but you're going to have many more rural communities, many more people on healthcare, that's gonna mean more healthcare provider jobs. And you don't have to take my word for it. MIT economist Simon Johnson and others have done studies on this. It would actually increase private sector jobs. And just one final point, which drives me crazy when they say, oh, this is some government takeover. In our country, we have 85% jobs are private sector. 15% are in the public sector. That mix is not gonna change much no matter which Democratic candidate becomes president. The question we're asking is, does the government have a role to make sure everyone has basic health care, basic education, even if the delivery of that uh, in the case of health care is private. Let's stay on health care and talk to you, Mayor Bottoms. Georgia is ranked as one of the worst states for health care, according to some recent studies that have come out. Now, in Atlanta, you have the Centers for Disease Control headquarters. You've got Emory University Hospital. So how do you use that kind of medical power and potential for innovation and, and translate it into solutions for people in your city? I think you've said it, potential for innovation. So what we've done in Atlanta is appointed a chief health officer. That's important because in Atlanta, our county is responsible for health. But what we know is that we have some of the highest HIV AIDS rates in America, specifically in the African-American community, specifically African-American women in Atlanta. We also know that the life expectancy, even in our city, spans a 10-year difference depending on your zip code in Atlanta. And so it's been extremely important for us to take responsibility for ourselves. And with that, we are leveraging partnerships with the CDC and some of our health providers. But again, thinking innovatively. Um, there's a memo that arrived on my desk last week because I challenged our team to do an analysis to see if we could extend the benefits that we have in the city of Atlanta for our employees to all of our citizens. Now, the memo came back with a really big price tag, so I don't know if we will achieve that tomorrow, but it's certainly something that we can strive towards, and I think that's where we are right now as local leaders. 
we are having to think about and give consideration to things uh, that we otherwise didn't have to just a few years ago. But I think it's also challenging us to think outside of the box. And we'll continue to do that in Atlanta and continue to leverage our partnerships in the best way that we can. But I think right now, it's about us meeting our communities at their point of need and working with partners like the CDC to do that. When you saw that price tag, what, what were your thoughts about creative solutions or ways that, is it, is it incremental? Is it, is it trying to find support from the federal government? Like where do you go? Next? I don't believe in impossibilities. I think it's a matter of us just making some tough decisions to see how we get there. So what we will likely do is not be able to extend it to all of Atlanta, but there are segmented populations that we can extend it to. And just as we're having this national conversation, I think what, what comes to mind for me is this great quote from Audre Lorde, revolution is not a one-time event. Sometimes it takes a step here and a step there, just like we took with Obamacare. And then we take the next step and then the next step to finally get to where we all want to be with health care that's available to everyone. Mayor Fisher, Kentucky has been one of the state's hardest hit by the opioid crisis. Uh, how is your administration continuing to address the needs of at-risk communities in Louisville? You know, the, the national media turns its attention to the crisis periodically. There's certainly reporting that continues on, but it doesn't always stay in the national spotlight. And yet you, the problem, of course, persists and you have to keep at it. Certainly, and the community has to have all types of wraparound services to deal with that. The, you know, the biggest detox center and the biggest mental health facility in most any city is the jail. And so it's the familiar faces that come and go through the jail that we really need to provide that treatment through so that they can have a warm handoff when they go outside of the jail, when they have a detox program within the jail, which we do. And so we do a lot of things in our jail that we, quote, don't have to do but we wanna make sure that people are leaving the jail in a better place and that they don't have to come back through. At the root of a lot of this, I just wanna talk about trauma for a second. When in the mayor's office, and we say mayors are in the reality business, okay? We, we're not up here talking about how things should be. We have to deal with things that happen day in and day out in the community. And in the mayor's office, and I'd be curious to hear what the mayor has to say about this, the majority of the things that we deal with are because of poverty and the impact of poverty. So how can you eliminate poverty in your community? And what is the, one of the causes of poverty that is so prevalent is just trauma and trauma coming back and forth. And when we talk to our young men and boys of color in particular, and you understand the multi-generational impact of trauma on them or living in a violent neighborhood or living in a violent household and how that triggers all of these other activities, their abilities to succeed in life are very, very low. So now once they've entered the system and come out of the system, and we have a program called the Thrive Program right now where we're demonstrating that investing in young men when they come out of prison or jail with a stipend and a, and a housing allowance and retraining, so to speak, so they can be productive citizens is a better investment than 70% recidivism rate. But I don't think people understand the amount of trauma that these guys go through. And so you might come out, and let's say us in this room, we might be dealing with one or two major personal issues, you personally or your family members. These guys are dealing with 12 to 20 major issues, and they don't have the resources to deal with those financially, and they haven't had the mental health care to understand how to deal with that as well. So as a country, 
This is a huge need that largely we don't see because it's internal, but we have to figure out how to wrap those services regularly around our young men and some young women for them to be able to get back on track and have a productive life. So it's just a huge problem when we talk about healthcare and expanding healthcare, expanding mental health care. It's starting to get more attention. It falls into the opioid and addiction area as well, but it's an area that we really lean into in our city. Mayor Bottoms, let's get your response. I think you're absolutely right. And uh, again, using the vision that we have to have as mayors to address these, uh, these issues in our communities has led us to reimagine what our jail is. So we have a jail in the city of Atlanta over 400,000 square feet. We were housing low-level offenders. We closed our jail to ICE. We eliminated cash bail bonds. Our jail now only has about 100 inmates per night, usually something like running a red light, not paying a speeding ticket. We are now uh, looking to open our jail as an equity center where people can come in off of the street, they can get supportive housing, they can get access to mental health services, they can get GED training, there is a physical space that they will be able to walk into and not think of incarceration as their first opportunity to access services, but think of this as a place that says as a city, we still believe in the people of our city. And I think as mayors, that's what we have to do. I would venture to say over the last three and a half years, we've had to do it on a much, much larger level but I think it's pushed us all a little further, and I think our communities are better for it. Yeah, I have a question coming in from Twitter. Tom writes and asks, how could a federal program like the Freedom Dividend proposed by the former Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang help with some of the issues that, that you're talking about? Let, let's get the mayors to weigh in quick. Well, it's, it's funny. Uh, I mean, what's the root of poverty? You don't have enough money, okay? And so what we have seen uh, when people have adequate amount of money, they can take care of issues that prevent, prevent them from earning money. So we see this in particular in our uh, junior technical colleges, where somebody's trying to pursue a two-year degree, a STEM degree, main disruptor of poverty is some type of post-secondary education, but their car breaks down, or they need child care services. We're talking about relatively small amounts of money, hundreds of dollars that they don't have. So. Uh, whether or not the freedom dividend is the right way to do it or whether it's increasing the minimum wage, we have to get more money in people's pockets so that they can get through the basics of life so they can be in a position where their human potential can flourish. That's how we define compassion in Louisville. That's one of our city values. I, I like it on its surface. I would love to test it out in Atlanta, but my concern is we go back to talking about the affordable housing issue, that we have all of these issues are connected. My concern is that private landowners or in Atlanta will now raise their rents $1,000 a month because they'll know everybody has another $1,000 in their pocket. And we don't have the ability to control, we don't have rent control in Georgia. And so that's my concern, what happens on the back end? Uh, will we then have other people accounting for somebody else's extra money? Well, we uh, have the presidential race, of course, in the spotlight right now, and 
all three of you are supporting, each of you are supporting a different Democratic presidential candidate, which is dynamic and exciting and an opportunity for us to talk about what uh, the presidential race and its outcome would look like um, in, in the, the constituent for the constituents you represent. So we'll start with you, Congressman. As we mentioned, you are the co-chair of Senator Sanders' campaign for president. Now, you represent one of the wealthiest congressional districts in the country. So how is your support of Senator Sanders playing to your constituents? Very well. I mean, it, candidly, uh, you have some of the workers and the engineers at these tech companies who really like him. The executives, maybe not as much, but uh, there are a lot more of the workers uh, who are constituents. Uh, and uh, what I'd say to people, though, is that what Senator Sanders is talking about, really, is a new New Deal for the 21st century. I mean, he's a new dealer. He believes that he wants to complete the project of FDR and that the investments in giving people health care and giving people education is what's going to allow them to be an entrepreneur. Hard to be an entrepreneur if you are dependent on your job uh, for health care. Hard to start a company or a small business if you don't have uh, the right education. Uh, hard to be a small business owner if you don't have childcare. So I, I think he's making the fundamental investments in our human capital in people that we're going to need for the 21st century. There are a lot of concerns among moderate members of the House, some of whom just won election for the first time in the last cycle, who worry that uh, a Senator Sanders at the top of the ticket would hurt their chances of retaining their moderate districts. Well, I've spoken to many of them, and I have great respect for a lot of them. Uh, I disagree that that's the case for two reasons. One, uh, the Senator Sanders uh, at the top of the ticket having a strong message and getting working class young people mobilized is going to have a record turnout. Donald Trump is going to have a record turnout. That's what he's going to do. He's going to pour $100 million into Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. They're already trying to register people. We have to match that turnout. The second thing is people can depart and run uh, their own district and they don't have to be a clone to Bernie Sanders. I mean, I'm his co-chair, as you pointed out. I represent Silicon Valley. I'm sure there's seven, eight issues where I've disagreed with him. And the Republicans have been actually pretty good at this. They have these strong conservatives, Ronald Reagan or something, run on the top of the ticket. And then if you're a Rockefeller Republican or a moderate district, you can depart on a particular issue. And Senator Sanders wants to build a broad coalition that allows people to do that. I have to get your reaction to his positive comments about Fidel Castro. What are your thoughts about how Senator Sanders fielded that question? My thoughts are that uh, he didn't have a positive characterization of Castro. Here's what he said, and here's what I think the choice is of the party. There is no doubt, in my view, that Fidel Castro was a brutal dictator in 1959 when he came to power. He had firing squads. He uh, hired political prisoners. Uh, some of the literacy program was indoctrination into communist ideology. Uh, it, no one has ever pointed to Cuba as a model. The senator, when he has, has pointed to some of the Scandinavian countries as a model. What the senator believes is that our choice is whether we go to President Obama's policy, which was one of engagement, having an embassy there, uh, or do we go to Donald Trump's policy, uh, which is uh, basically reversing everything Obama did? So I think what the presidential candidate should uh, argue about or uh, put their position is, are you for Obama or are you for Trump? And let me tell you, Barack Obama would have carried or would carry Florida in 2020. The demographics of that state are changing. Let's move on to you, Mayor Bottoms. You wrote an op-ed for CNN last year about why you were endorsing Joe Biden for president. What are your concerns about South Carolina? I mean, does he need to win that state in order to move on? And of course, Super Tuesday is right around the corner. Georgia will have its say soon. What are you thinking? I was thinking about a slogan my nine-year-old son said the other day, who's all into the polls. 
He said, Mommy, SOB. I'm like, what? He said, save our Biden. <laughs> so, um, and I think, I, I think he did that for himself last night. I thought he had a fantastic debate performance. I would venture to say his best yet. And I think when we talk about Michigan, when we talk about Pennsylvania, when we talk about Ohio, you talk about union members who have negotiated for years for health care benefits. The thought of those health care benefits and being taken away from them scares them. That's my concern about Senator Sanders. But I think that at the end of the day, any candidate in this field will be a much better candidate or much better president than the one who currently occupies the White House. But does he have to win South Carolina? I think he needs to win South Carolina. I think he will win South Carolina. But I think that he will be very strong going into Super Tuesday. And I still believe that he is our best chance of beating Donald Trump. Okay, well, with a different perspective, Mayor Fisher, your national co-chair of the Bloomberg campaign. A lot of mayors have gotten on board uh, with Bloomberg's campaign. You're also the president-elect, I want to point out, of the U.S. Conference of Mayors. So you do have your finger on the pulse of what mayors are talking about and how they're feeling. So, so you know, we all watched the debate last night. Um, I'm interested in, in how you feel he's responding to these criticisms about stop and frisk, about redlining, something you yourself brought up a little while ago. Why should Democrats and working families support him? Well, we, I think for one, we, want, we want to be practical on how we are going to defeat Donald Trump. I mean, Americans are just worn out, you know, now having to think about what the president is doing every 15 minutes, and we want to get back to some type of normalcy. So mayors are practical by nature. That's why you see so many mayors supporting Mike. We know the breadth and depth of the quality of his operation. And when you take a look at a thing like stop and frisk, for instance, to me, it tells a story of what you want in a leader when you play it all out. So when he became mayor in 2001, stop and frisk was the national best practice for, for violent crime reduction, whether it was New York, Philadelphia, Chicago, what have you. Everybody was doing it. Yes, he did it too much. He's apologized for that, reduced 95%. But then the question is, what's next? So he said, what's the root cause of most of this crime? It's poverty. So he started the Young Men's Initiative. President Obama then scaled the Young Men's Initiative to My Brother's Keeper. Mike then says, the moms, that are the, the moms whose kids are getting killed don't have a voice. So he starts Moms Demand at Action, which of course is a powerhouse organization. Then he says, we're not doing enough to take on the NRA. So he took on the NRA with Every Town for Gun Safety, started that and has beaten them time and time again. So what you see there is the arc of a leader who says, okay, what I thought was going to work out didn't work out. I'm sorry. Let's change. Let's pivot. Let's do something good. He Wouldn't that be this, nice to have him in the White House? He defended that program, though, just a few years ago. So He did, and he said he was wrong. And I think we want somebody in the White House that can say, I tried something. It didn't work. I'm wrong. I'm pivoting. And now we're doing something good as a result of that. What a refreshing leader that would be to have. Well, uh, unfortunately, that's all the time we have. It just, it's been delightful to talk to all of you and really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. Let's go through our guests again. Congressman Ro Khanna, thank you. Mayor Bottoms and Mayor Fisher, thank you so much to each of you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.